0: At you. In 2007, Stephen Green, the National Director of Christian Voice, took out a blasphemy prosecution against the BBC for screening Jerry Springer, the opera. By all accounts, although I didn't see it, the programme was pretty blasphemous. At the very least, it was a nasty, prurient, mocking piece of television which, which didn't do particular honour to the, to the BBC, I think. Most people who watched it agreed with that. But my question is this. Was Stephen Green right to attempt a blasphemy prosecution? I, I frankly, don't think so course he went to court because of his deep Christian convictions, in in particular his biblically based conviction that Jerry Springer the opera was blasphemous and uh, up to that point I agree with him. I think the Bible would label programmes like that as blasphemous. But where I part company with uh, Stephen Green and to be honest many others is on whether um, blasphemy prosecutions in general should be pursued in the courts. I'm convinced that uh, Stephen Green, and I have to be honest, a significant proportion of Christians in this country, they have misunderstood the biblical role of government and by extension of the, uh, uh, of the law courts. More than that, I'm convinced actually that a lack of careful thinking in this area is in danger of bringing the reputation of Christ into disrepute. So, for this second sermon in our series on the Bible and politics, I, I've got one end. Um, My aim last week was focused on persuading you that it is appropriate, in fact it is a biblical mandate to be concerned about politics and I hope at least some of you were persuaded that from beginning to end of the Bible, the Bible is interested in the solid, practical, earthly matters concerning uh, uh, people and resources and so Christians should be too. But my aim this week is focused in a slightly different direction. A second introductory issue before we get on to specific issues in, in subsequent weeks, but a very, very important one. My aim this morning is to, to try to demonstrate to you and prove to you from Scripture that actually in Scripture... The Bible sets out a very significantly limited role for government. Some uh, uh, theologians and philosophers have uh, started to call it principled pluralism. I want to explain to you Uh, at least my understanding of the role of government and uh, I believe the Bible's teaching about the role of of government in a state such as ours. And um, um, put very simply, I would want to summarise it like that. Government has a limited role to provide an environment of peace and relative justice in which people of a variety of different faiths and worldviews may live with equal dignity and freedom. That's what I want to persuade you of this morning. And uh, first of all, I I, um, have to point out that that contrasts with what the uh, majority, it seems to me, of of Christians um, believe in Britain and indeed in Europe and have believed for the last 1,500 years, so... I recognise I've got a challenge on my hands. The majority of of Christians have believed that it is appropriate to understand us as living in a Christian nation and they believe that the, the government of a Christian nation has a responsibility to uphold the teachings of the Bible simply because they are the teachings of the Bible. And I don't believe that. I, uh, I believe, frankly, in, in, from a biblical point of view, Britain never has been, nor ever is likely to be, a truly Christian nation. And the Bible itself never actually expects to be applied in a wholesale way to a whole nation. It may be that in the past um, uh, the majority of people in nations including our nations acknowledged Christian understanding of right and wrong as being the understanding of right and wrong that they wanted to embrace and I absolutely rejoice with with that and uh, uh, as a result Britain and other nations has a, a marvellous heritage of righteous and just laws that we should rightly be proud of. But it is a big step from... Uh, to go from a place where the majority of people were persuaded in their own hearts that the Bible was the way to live to saying that somehow a nation must live order itself by biblical principles whatever the people of that nation believe. Okay. I hope I've got your attention. Let me uh, uh, let me try to set out uh, why I believe that. First of all, I want to explain the biblical foundations of um, this uh, belief, which may uh, hopefully elaborate a little bit more what I'm what I'm talking about. First of all, the Old Testament. The Old Testament portrays the nation of Israel among the nations. And Israel is clearly responsible to obey everything that the Lord teaches. She is given the law on Mount Sinai and she is held accountable as a nation, the people, for obeying the law of the Lord. It is very clearly set out everywhere in the Old Testament. However, When the Old Testament comes to addressing the nations, we see a different picture. They're not automatically expected to obey every precept of the law. Let me give you an example from uh, the book of Amos, the prophecy of Amos, uh, chapters 1 and 2. Amos sets about, as some other prophets do, criticising the whole of the world that he knew, the surrounding nations and he will ultimately come to his own nation, Israel. And it is very significant how he sets out to criticise those wider nations. Verse 3 for instance of chapter 1, For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because... She threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. Or for three sins of Gaza even before, I will not turn back my my wrath, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. Or um, uh, Moab will be uh, um, judged because he burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. Actually, Amos is, is, is laying the foundations, as other passages in the, in the Old Testament, is laying the foundations, for instance, for an understanding of what a just war might be, including the um, non-involvement of innocent combatants. On another occasion, I, I haven't put it there in another part of Amos uh, those prophecies, he criticizes them for slitting open pregnant women. Yeah. Whole communities should not be, uh, uh, should be affa- affected. Innocent people, especially women and children, should not be affected uh, uh, and, and so on. But uh, for the purposes of, of uh, today, I want you to see that Amos is criticising them for absolutely gross aberrations. aberrations from uh, uh, proper behaviour that anybody ought to recognise. And it is only when, when Amos gets to Israel that he becomes more specific because the Israel are to, be, uh, to feel God's wrath because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. So, Israel, crucially, is judged for rejecting the law of the Lord. She should have been responsible for that. The nations are expected to have a much more limited understanding of what is right and wrong. God will judge them, because... They offend even according to that limited understanding. They're not held accountable for not obeying every aspect of the law of the Lord. Indeed, the relationship of Israel to the nations is quite clear. Israel is to be a model community who speaks the truth about God and, crucially, not to invade and overrun the nations and uh, and by force force them to obey the Lord, but in fact to live in such a way and to speak in such a way that voluntarily the nations come and worship the Lord. Isaiah chapter 2, for instance, is just one example of that. Remember um, a great prophecy of the last days. And uh, Isaiah says, many peoples will come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. They will voluntarily see the righteousness and the goodness and the glory of the Lord and come. That's the Old Testament vision. And the New Testament uh, um, vision takes that picture forward and although it is changed in certain ways, it has strong connections as well. The New Testament pictures not Israel among the nations, but the church as a distinct community in the state or in the world. The church it is, who, uh, for instance, who inherit the uh, status of being covenant people. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, for instance, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to, the, to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. They are a chosen people, they are the, they, they are the holy nation. They are the ones who are called to obey everything that the Lord has told them. We, if we are believers here today, are called to do that without any ambiguity. To obey Jesus with our whole lives. But when the New Testament starts talking about the responsibility of the state, as a whole of the of the wider nation, which includes people who ha- who have not voluntarily chosen to follow Jesus, it is more general, just like the Old Testament was in its in its attitude to the nations. For instance, there's an absolutely fascinating um, interaction in Acts chapter 18. You might like to turn to it because. Uh, uh, I think it's one of the clearer moments in the New Testament when we start to see a picture of what the New Testament expects of a state. Um, the context is that they're in, uh, in Corinth, and uh, um, Gallio has been made um, proconsul in uh, verse 12 and uh, various hostile people bring to uh, Gallio the Apostle Paul to accuse him of sedition. Um, Gallio then very significantly um, stops the proceedings in verse 14. If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things, he says. Now, it's possible that Luke is recording that simply because it happened and uh, that is the way that the Roman uh, world and the Roman law worked. But uh, Luke is a sophisticated theologian and there are, um, there are lots of indications that he, that he records specific incidents in the book of Acts uh, as an apologetic for what the church should be like and what the Roman authorities, how the Roman authorities should behave. It seems every indication here that Luke approves of Gallio's response as a model response for a Roman governor. And Gallio's role in Roman law is very interesting. It is to maintain the peace fundamentally, the Pax Romana. It is to punish, as Gallio explicitly says, serious crimes. If it was about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable to listen, uh, for me to listen to you. But it is explicitly to allow liberty of conscience in other matters. He saw that they were disputing about words and names. He recognises some, some uh, role of, uh, for their own law, Interestingly. In determining this. And he will not get involved in matters that are not actually injurious to the public peace or associated with serious crimes. Gallio himself, and the Roman law was like this, explicitly accepts a limited role for government in a plural society, in a society where different people believe different things and there may be tensions. Or well, let me take you to, to uh, uh, the, the reading that we had just uh, a moment ago to try to make this case. Romans chapter 13. There, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a tendency, it seems, to, uh, to, to ignore or uh, uh, potentially to disobey authorities. And uh, last week we said, no, we must honour uh, government and that means being responsible citizens and so on. We, we looked at Romans 13 in that context. This, there, today, though, I want you to note that the, the, the limited way limited way in which Paul describes the role of government he 's really quite general he is god 's servant to do you good he says and he doesn't go beyond that could be an accident but it, but but uh, uh, It seems to be part of a broad pattern in Scripture from beginning to end. The role of government amongst people who have not, uh, who are not the covenant people of God is a more, more broad and general one. Some people might object, of course, that uh, in the first century there was no possibility of a Christian government and therefore it's not surprising the New Testament uh, takes, that, uh, takes that stance. What about if Christians are in the majority? Shouldn't we then, uh, is, it, is, it, is it not possible for there to be a Christian country? And uh, my answer to that is that it seems to me that both in Scripture and least from my reading of history, there is an explicit repudiation in scripture of that wider role for the detailed law of the Lord. And whenever that's been forgotten, it hasn't been long before the church has got into trouble. So, that's where uh, uh, I think scripture is pointing us. There there is a role of government but it is a limited role to punish serious crimes, to promote uh, the common good, to maintain peace in a society with people with different views, with all views and none. And there is a distinct role for the church. The church is the covenant nation is the, the people of God. They are to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. They are to seek to persuade in the wider world, uh, the wider world to understand and see what is right and wrong without using coercion. And they are to seek to live peace, peacefully in a pluralistic society, claiming no privilege just because they are Christians. I have already said that history somewhat goes against that grain. Let me sketch it out for you very briefly, it will be very briefly. I've republished some prayer notes I wrote uh, a couple of years ago on the issue, do you remember, of the uh, Danish cartoons um, that uh, caused great offence. To give you a little bit more historical background, you can find that on the website. Let me just um, sketch it out very quickly. For the first three centuries of the church, uh, Christians did appeal for toleration and uh, to be allowed to live freely in a plural society. Of course, just like in the first century, they had no power and so many people would say it's not surprising they appealed uh, for that. Indeed, when in the fourth century Emperor Constantine was converted and suddenly the Roman Empire became a Christian Empire, it wasn't long, to be honest, before Christians who now had a privileged position started to talk about uh, the the Roman Empire as as the Empire of Christ, even. And over the uh, centuries that followed... We had the Crusades, which was a great blot on Christian history, still remembered vividly by Muslims today. It was used to justify pogroms against the Jews in this country and others. Uh, In the Reformation, it was used to justify executions for heresy and even more more recently, in, uh, in this country, non-Anglicans would denied a university education. It has been a very strong theme, this Christian nation theme, and it has always, uh, from my reading of history, resulted in the suppression and persecution of other groups. It was at the Reformation in the 16th century, though, that the idea of what has come to be called principal pluralism, got going, very slowly. Particularly amongst Baptists and dissenters, as they were called, because they dissented to be part of the Church of England. And some were imprisoned, some died for their beliefs. For instance, the first Baptist minister, a man called Thomas Helwitz, in the early 17th century was imprisoned and died in prison, specifically as a result of this belief that there ought to be liberty of conscience amongst people. But slowly it gained ground, that view. And dissenters became stronger and uh, uh, for hundreds of years were pretty clear. We need a tolerant society of religious freedom. For instance, in the 19th century, um, uh, dissenters, Baptists were at the forefront of campaigning for Jews to be allowed to become MPs. Before that, they weren't allowed. And there was no self-interest in that particularly. They just fundamentally believed that the nation should not govern itself as somehow an exclusively Christian nation that excluded others. They had felt too much persecution themselves not to have sympathy with Jews. My big concern, and the reason why I wanted to devote a whole session to this, is that it's my conviction that that has been substantially forgotten today on all sides. To be honest, it has never really been a part of Anglican theology. Uh, The Anglican Church has always, uh, 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 of its nature, Believed in a, uh, a, a Christian the idea of a Christian nation, and there are um, campaign groups at the uh, today like the Christian Institute that continue that, that that tradition. I put in the notes for last week that, that they, I had some reservations about the Christian Institute. I think it does great, um, uh, great work in lots of ways in alerting uh, Christians to moral issues, but it but it has a view that we simply ought to be a Christian nation. And that's not one that I can hold. So at important moments I I part company with them. One of my bigger concerns is that frankly free churches which have or have had in the past this understanding of the relationship between church and state in their very DNA, they have in many situations substantially forgotten that. And I want to remind you or tell you about a glorious history that free churches have had. Uh, another group that I mentioned last week, Christian Concern for Our Nation, which again does lots of good work, again has a non-denominational but relatively monofocal attitude. That if it's in the Bible, they must do everything they possibly can to get it in the statutes of our nation. I don't believe that. And even more worrying, from my point of view, present politicians it seems have substantially forgotten that vision, that plural vision for society. It is a vision that was what was won slowly and painfully over five hundred years, and yet yet it seems to be dissolving as far as I can see very rapidly. Let me give you a, a Two examples to make the point. In 1960, I think it was, or in the 1960s, the Abortion Act was passed. And at the same time as passing the, the, or as part of the Abortion Act, there was explicitly in the Abortion Act a conscience clause for doctors, mainly Christian doctors, who didn't feel able, wouldn't feel able to recommend an abortion to someone. The state ensured that everybody should have access to an abortion. Now let me be clear actually, I profoundly disagree with that piece of legislation. I think it was uh, it, it opened a floodgate for, for all sorts of problems in society. but let, we can leave that aside for a minute and just just recognize that the abortion act was passed by a, a legitimate and accountable, in a legitimate and accountable manner by the government. I believe therefore, uh, unless we can persuade our nation otherwise, we have a duty to acknowledge that that our nation has a right to make decisions of that sort. But the nation as a whole as well must afford the liberty of conscience for people, Christians and others, who do not, could not themselves be involved in that practice. And in the 1960s that was successfully worked out. Still today doctors can say uh, that they have a conscientious objection to being involved with abortion and they will not be discriminated against. But the 2007 sexual orientation regulations, which uh, dealt with um, issues of homosexuality, were very, very different. Now again, I, I have to say that those regulations were brought in by an appropriate and due process within government and I think the majority of the country Um, would would substantially agree with them and therefore I feel obliged to say that I have to accept that it is the law of the land. But crucially, there was no conscientious objection clause. So the Catholic uh, uh, adoption agencies found themselves in trouble because they didn't feel that they could recommend homosexual couples as appropriate parents in an adoption situation. Now in the past, such conscientious objections would have been worked around. It is entirely possible for the government to make sure that homosexual couples have access to adoption, whilst as well preserving the liberty of conscience of minorities who could not themselves be involved with it. But that was steamrolled over in 2007. And the uh, Catholic adoption agencies since then have had to close or capitulate. Now, that is a totalitarian vision of government. And it is a profoundly disturbing vision of government. Democracy is 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 a great system, but if it results simply in the tyranny of 51%, we are in trouble. It was totalitarian visions of government that sent people to prison for legitimate conscientious objections in the past. And we are not that far from it now. I, as part of my preparation for this uh, sermon series, I wrote to uh, the candidates for East Oxford. I'm sorry, you do come from more than one constituency here, but I couldn't do them all. So I wrote to the four main candidates for, for East Oxford, um, uh, Labour, Conservative, Liberal Democrat and Green. And I will try to report back to you and even um, publish the responses that they've given me on various issues so far only labor and uh, liberal Democrats have got round to uh, responding to me so so i can 't um, i can 't tell you uh, what everyone believes on this but I have to say that that both Andrew Smith and Steve Goddard who 's the liberal Democrat candidate, though both of them acknowledge to a point that there is a right of liberty of conscience. Neither of them demonstrates, as far as I can see, an understanding of what's really at stake. Andrew Smith I can talk about a little bit more because I've talked to him face to face about it and corresponded with him on various issues. And uh, I can say he simply does not see it. He simply cannot see that government has any other view, should have any other role than simply to impose the view, or his view, if they are in power. That I am very worried about. I have to say, in in the wider world, the Liberal Democrats have demonstrated themselves to be no different. The Tories, I think, have not been clear on it from my point of view, but it has to be said they have been at the forefront of uh, resisting some of the more totalitarian uh, uh, kinds of legislation. And the Green Party as well in their their recent history has not been particularly any different from Labour or, or Liberal Democrats. I think there is a national amnesia about how Britain historically managed to work out a way of living together as people from different views. And of course it is fueled by the increased multiculturalism and the particularly militant um, uh, forms of religion there are around, particularly in Islam. It has made those who are in power worried and their reflex has been to suppress. And it is precisely the wrong reflex. If minorities are suppressed about their their sincerely held conscientious worries, they will not simply roll over they will become more and more militant. Some of them possibly dangerously so, as we have seen. It seems to me that Christians then need to stand up and stand up really clearly against a totalitarian view of government. We have, as Christians, a mixed record on that. But I think Scripture, and in fact the tradition that this church belongs to, which goes back for 500 years, is very clear. Let me give you, just for one minute, a couple of uh, examples of how what this might mean. Free speech, for instance. I cannot see that a country ever should prosecute someone for blasphemy. That is a matter of legitimate difference amongst the people. Frankly, every day in the mosque, things would be said which from a Christian point of view would be blasphemous. I do not want to prosecute my Muslim friends. Actually the way the English blasphemy law is, uh, is formulated, you could make a case that I am speaking blasphemy right now because blasphemy according to English law is, is a teaching against the teachings of the Church of England. There are, it's, much, it's quite possible to formulate laws against incitement of violence, of violence, which will cover what is necessary, not only in the religious sphere, but in other areas of difference, such as attitudes towards sexual orientation and so on. Let me um, deal with one other issue just as an example. What should our attitude be to other religions? seems to me we should support actively the provision of appropriate places for public worship. Uh, at the moment in Oxford, the Sikhs do not have an appropriate place to worship. They do not have a proper gurdwara. Uh, I've, I've been with them at a gathering. It's in a semi-detached house and it causes enormous Hostility from the neighbours. I've had my car physically pushed out of the way because I, I uh, in innocence, parked it in a place that the neighbours took objection to. They need a place of worship which is appropriate and, uh, and useful for them. Shouldn't we as Christians be supporting them in that? Or Islamic um, call to prayer has been controversial nationally in Oxford. I actually think there needs to be some sort of um, uh, a mediation and some sort of uh, some sort of mutual submission between religious groups in general and a wider society. And I'm not convinced that allowing a public Islamic call to prayer would be appropriate in East Oxford, particularly, I would say, if the majority of people don't want to hear it. But I have to say as well, I would go for equality on that. If the majority of people don't want to hear church bells that call people to prayer, then though I think they're lovely and a great British tradition, I think in a fair and equal and just society, we may have to say. No. Because you see, our fundamental calling is not to push for legislation at every level which. Promotes our own interests. Philippians chapter 2 is, amongst other things, potentially a profoundly political statement. Verse 3, it's on page 1179. taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness uh, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What if Christians in this country became known as people who do not look only to their own interests, but to the interests of others? What if Christians in this country became known as people who humbled themselves, who looked out for the interests of the wider community, who who were committed to the common good, even at expense of their own comfort? and their own privileges? What if they were known as people who held together in what I recognise is enormous tension, the tension between speaking the truth to the world about Jesus and about what is right, and also affirming the fundamental human rights and dignity of those who nevertheless say, I don't want to live like that. What if they were people who eschewed the power of law to suppress those people and found ways whilst perhaps profoundly disagreeing with them of loving them and caring for them in the wider world? I am not offering simple answers. It is a difficult and complex uh, Um, world that we live in. But I am saying that the simple answer of just saying we must impose everything that we possibly can that is Christian on others has never worked, will never work is contrary to scripture. I want to call you to be people who actually recognise the dignity, the human dignity of every single person that you meet. You may be hated for what you believe, but as Jesus said, we love them in response. We care for their rights and their well-being. Because we want to live as Jesus lived. took Jesus to the cross. There was absolutely no doubt that Christians who live like that won't be loved anymore. But just perhaps Jesus will be respected the more.